You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 173. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. A special greetings to the 904 followers on Spotify. Thank you so much. Every time I go to record an episode, we have more followers and more downloads. Again, always remarkable to me that anyone listens to this podcast. And so for all of you that support the podcast and all of you that support all of my other ventures, I truly appreciate it and I thank you. Today on the podcast, since I am headed out of town for the next two weeks to speak at a conference and then disappear into Mexico, spend time with my spiritual family, thought I'd hammer out at least one episode for you. That being said though, it is hailing and my throat is raw, so I will try to drink and uh, stay hydrated and lubricated while I talk so that I'm not coughing and hacking into your ear. And if you hear any noise in the background, more than likely, uh, those are hailstones. So with that being said, let's get to the show today to follow through on what I talked about last week in terms of fear and social control. I thought we would go back to a question that I haven't talked to for quite some time now, actually, which is, okay, there are forces outside of our control, people, personalities outside of our control that seek to keep us in a holding pattern of fear and insecurity so that we are easy to manipulate. But what about our part in all of this? Are we simply victims of fear and insecurity? Are these powers, these personalities that are outside of us, that are planning and scheming and engaging in their tactics and their strategies, and that we are oblivious to these things? We only find out about them when they decide we need to know. And then, of course, only the parts that they want to reveal to us are what ultimately we learn. But what about our part in all this? Are we completely helpless? Or, in a way, do we actually contribute to the fear and the insecurity? Or beyond that, are we enslaving ourselves? And so when these people, these institutions, these corporations, these political parties, these groups, When they prey upon our fears and insecurities, are they doing anything else other than simply picking up what we're putting down? Is it that we might actually be the ones who are the most responsible for our own personal enslavement? Because if we look at it historically, since the dawn of civilization, or at least the advent of recorded written history, There have always been tyrants and despots and dictators, always, of course, because it is within the scope of human nature that the more power you offer to me, the more power available to me, the more I'm going to take it and seize upon it and use it for my own benefits at your expense, usually. And I suppose in a way, then we could call this a plague, a societal plague, a cultural plague, because none of us want to be subjugated to the absolute will of another person. We all want to enjoy a certain degree of freedom, liberty, to get along with our neighbors, to pursue our interests and seek after our desires, choose for ourselves the terms of our employment, where we live, who we date or marry, how we name our children and so on. None of us, I don't think, well, not many of us, let's put it that way, right? Not many of us would vote to be ruled over by a despot. Therefore, the dichotomy of human existence is that on the one hand, we can all reiterate what I just laid out to one degree or another. And yet on the other hand, given power, we would become despots we would seize upon that power. And you can say to yourself, well, but I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I'm a spiritual person. Okay. If I give you a little bit of power and you are a good person, 
You are a virtuous person. You are dedicated to making the world a better place. If I give you a little bit of power, you're going to take that power and work to make the world a better place. But what if I resist your ideas about how to make the world a better place? What if a group of us rise up and form a counter group that is doing the opposite of what you're doing because we think that you're actually hurting the world and so we're going to make the world a better place through our organization and in our works. And so we're at war with each other. And maybe it's just a war of words. Maybe we're competing for donor dollars. But let me give you a little bit more power. Let's say that now you have power, not only just a, a group of people that wants to make the world a better place, I give you power where now you are over a state <clears throat> or a province or a whole area. And now instead of being in charge of 20 people, 100 people, maybe even 500 people, now you're in charge of tens of thousands of people, maybe even millions. And amongst those people, there are at least one third of the population who thinks that everything that you say and do is stupid. It could even rise to 50% depending on your policies. Maybe even more than 50%. Maybe it becomes an outright rebellion against your power and authority because a majority of the people that you're responsible for decide, we don't like the way that you're going with these social policies. We want more of a say in how we govern ourselves. How are you going to deal with that? And then I give you even more power. Now you have the power of a kingdom or a nation and you're responsible for the lives of millions of people. But those people, they're almost impossible to control because they are so spread out and your control of them, your influence over them is so limited based on just geography and you're only one person. And maybe you have a, a, a table of people that advise you or a whole cabinet or a group of wise men and women, maybe even a parliament or a Congress or a Senate. Maybe you have the military on your side. Maybe you have police on your side, law enforcement. And so you have all these ideas based on what you think is good and virtuous and right for not only yourself, but for everyone to a greater and lesser degree. You just need everyone to get on board and help you follow through on your ideas, your convictions. But again, one third of the population doesn't want to. Well, maybe it's half or maybe it's more than 70%. Now what are you going to do? You have your convictions, but you also have the refusal of the people that you're supposed to be helping improve their lives. They don't, they don't want you to do that. They don't agree with your plans. They don't want to help you carry out your strategies. How much power are you or I going to be given before we start to see others as an obstruction to a better, more fruitful existence for everyone? And what are we prepared to do when we have access to that kind of power, whether it be military and law enforcement, whether it be the ability to write and pass laws. I think each of us, if we're honest, we all know that we have the capacity for great evil and doing and committing great acts of evil in the name of good. But it doesn't start by someone giving me all of the power in the world all at one time. It starts with maybe I'm in command of a squad or I'm put in charge of a local charitable organization with 30 volunteers. But through my efforts, by the grace of God, that improves and it increases. And I'm put in charge of more and more people and more and more money and given more and more power and influence and connecting with more and more powerful people and traveling in more influential circles. At some point, each one of us is going to be tempted. Each one of us is going to be seduced or enchanted by the opportunities that power offer us. This is how the devil works. Like I said last week, I think, first he offers us bread. I'll take care of your bills. I'll take care of putting food on your table, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head. All of us would jump at that opportunity to not have to worry about those things. But if that fails or we're satisfied with our lot in life, he then offers us safety. And that's the big ticket item for all of us nowadays. This is why fear and insecurity run off of fear that we're not going to be safe. 
We're not safe from an invisible virus. We're not safe from those people who are the enemies of our freedom over there, as we are so often told. The enemies of what is good, the enemies of democracy, the enemies of the Hollywood entertainment industry, and so on. That's the next step up. Do you want to be safe? You don't have to lock your doors at night. You don't have to worry about being robbed or raped or murdered when you're going about your daily lives. And should that fail then, Lastly, it is to offer you all of the kingdoms of earth if you simply bend a knee and worship Satan as God. And now we're at the point of power, success. I'll give you everything that your heart desires. I will give you power if you just worship me. And we see this then in the United States with most politicians. They bend the knee to some corporate entity. They bend the knee to some oil sheik. They bend their knee to some entity that bankrolls their campaigns, puts food on their table, keeps them safe because they're surrounded by armed guards at all times, and offers them the entire world as their opportunity to improve their wealth and their well-being and the well-being of generations to come for them. This is why politics is so nepotistic. And so since the birth of civilization, yes, there's been tyrannical rulers, because in each one of our hearts, we are born with a desire to be satisfied, to be safe, and to be successful. And when we get opportunity, when we get to tap into those things, it's not enough to just have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich anymore. I need the best bread made from the best ingredients. I need the best peanut butter and the best jelly. I need it prepared by a master chef so that when I eat that peanut butter and jelly sandwich, not only does it taste delicious, but I also have the knowledge then, and this is what makes it extra specially delicious, is that no one else in the world right now is eating this peanut butter and jelly sandwich because only I possess the means to gather up the ingredients, to bring in the best chefs, to have it served on the best plates at the best table, in the best house, and no one else gets to have this peanut butter sandwich. And the reason that I get this peanut butter sandwich in this way and no one else can is because I'm so good at what I do. And if I'm so good at what I do, why don't other people want to listen to me and do and repeat what I do and what I tell them to do? That's hubris. That's arrogance. And yet, so often, as I've experienced, it is always phrased, it's always couched in the language of, What's good for me is good for everybody else. And what's good for everybody else is good for me so long as everyone does exactly what I tell them to do. And so because we are driven by this appetite for power and influence, for success, for safety, for satisfaction, each one of us individually will do our best in this life to control our mind and our body and our emotions. And then... Having succeeded at that, we think, we then step outside of ourselves and seek to do that for others. And like I said, the more power we have, the more power we are given, the more control we have over others. Until ultimately, when we achieve ultimate power, I'm not going to ask you to change the way that you live. I'm going to force you to change the way that you live because you you ignorant peasant, you sheep, you don't know what's good for you, but I do because I'm more educated than you. I have more money in the bank than you. I have more square feet in my house than you. More people listen to me than you. And therefore, look at my resume. It is obvious to anyone that I am better situated to decide what's good for you than even you are. And if you refuse to listen to me and to do what I tell you to do, you are resisting what is good and what is beneficial, not just for yourself, but for everyone. And so I have to force you to do this. I have to send in law enforcement. I have to send in the military because you, you ignorant savage, you uneducated, illiterate rube, you don't understand. I'm trying to help you, right? It's like, When you watch videos of people beating animals and screaming, I'm trying to help you, you stupid animal. 
Why won't you let me help you? When you get to that point in life where you look at other people like they're nothing but a stupid animal or a rube, as I said, you have lost the thread, in my opinion. (laughs) And now you've become a despot. You've become a dictator and authoritarian. Because you're not checking yourself. You're not being thoughtful about your own failings and shortcomings, and you're not looking deeply and thoughtfully into the heart that beats within your chest, the darkest corners of that heart, and recognizing, acknowledging this need that I have to control others is cancer. It's spiritual and moral cancer. And I need to relent of this. I need to listen to those who are warning me and trying to check me. I need to seek to give away power, not to consolidate it. But of course, that's contrary to the way that the world works. And those who have great power are afraid to relinquish that power because they know on account of how they have chosen to use that power, they have made so many enemies. And should they ever have to relinquish that power, should they ever choose to relinquish that power, their enemies will pounce and they will show no mercy because, well, when I had power, when all the chips were on my side of the table, I didn't show any mercy either. And so there's this French philosopher, and I'm terrible at pronouncing French, so again, forgive me. (laughs) Etienne de la Boétie, I think his name is. He's a 16th century French philosopher. Etienne de la Boétie. And he wrote this essay entitled The Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. So this is already back in the 1500s. He's thinking about this. And what he asserts in the essay, The Discourse on Voluntary Servitude, is that including the most tyrannical governments, They can only rule for extended durations if they have the general support of the populace. Dictators, despots, they can't actually maintain their power, their rule, for any length of time if the population, if their own citizenry, doesn't allow them to do it. And this is proven by just objective numbers. The peasantry have far more numbers on their side than those who are in power. This is something that baffled me as a child. When I was in sixth grade, we every year the sixth graders would get in, set up in the gym and we would have a kind of, it was called the Festival of Nations. And each student in the class, there were two sixth grade classes, each student had to pick a nation. Mine was South Africa because I became fascinated with not only the Boer War, but apartheid and everything that went with it. So I choose South Africa and I set up my booth in the gym right next to Norway and I think, what was on the other side of me? I can't remember. And, you know, people from other classes would come, other teachers and so on, and they would quiz you. They would ask you questions about your country and you had to dress in the garb of that country. And if you wanted to, you could serve food that was native to that, that culture. And you would talk about the history of the country and its people. You would talk about its resources, its exports and imports, its form of governance. It was a lot of fun, actually. And so even in sixth grade, the thing that I thought almost immediately when I read about apartheid was, well, why don't all the people revolt? Because at that time, there was something like 10,000 Zulus for every one Boer, something to that, or like 1 million even. It was amazing. It was, it was so tilted in one direction. And I thought, well, you have millions of folks descended from Zulus or who are Zulus, a part of this tribe, and then all the other tribes within that. And then you have this little group of Dutch settlers and their, their progeny. And so these, these Boers are in charge and there's a very small group of them. And then there's all these people that are being subjugated and that's a huge group. Why don't they ever just rise up as one and revolt? And that's what he's talking about here. What is it about the population, the populace, that prevents them from simply looking around and saying, wait, there's so many of us and so few of them why don't we just drag them out and hang them from a tree? What stops us from doing that? And not just people in the United States in the present tense in 2023, but throughout history, this has been the case. What is it about human nature that we crave power? Like we want power. We want absolute power. And yet simultaneously, when someone else has that power, we cave to them. It's a very interesting phenomenon to me. Because if one day we all just stopped obeying, we just refused to obey, if we stopped surrendering our wealth and our property, 
to those who are oppressing us for their own benefits. In the words of Boati, become naked and undone and as nothing. Just as when the root receives no nourishment, the branch will wither and die. And so mass submission to oppressive political regimes and, and oppressive political figures, it's always voluntary. That's the thing. The thing that spurs him to write the discourse on voluntary servitude is that he recognizes it's actually a matter of consent to an oppressive political regime that empowers that regime. In essence, we are our own slave masters. And so we can blame the despot, the dictator, the authoritarian figure who's standing up there on the balcony telling us the way it's going to be. We can bend a knee to the military and to law enforcement who serve at the pleasure of those political regimes. And we can blame all of them and say we are victims. But we're not. It's voluntary because we outnumber them. Remember recently on the podcast, I talked about the French resistance, the Belarusian resistance. It was about 2% of the population. Why such a small group? Why didn't more people join the resistance? Why didn't they fight against the Nazis in this instance? They knew the terrain. They were fighting for their people, their homes, their way of life. And yet 98% of the population simply said, we'll go along to get along because it's better than being mistreated, attacked, executed, persecuted. Isn't that odd that a nation of tens of millions of people will bend a knee to an army of hundreds of thousands? A city of millions of people will bend the knee to a regime that's made up of a few hundred. And therefore, again, in Boati's opinion, we submit by choice. And so he writes, obviously, there is no need of fighting to overcome this single tyrant because he is automatically defeated, automatically defeated, if the country refuses consent to its own enslavement. It's not necessary to deprive him of anything, but simply to give him nothing. There is no need that the country make an effort to do anything for itself, provided it does nothing against itself. Don't shoot yourself in the foot. Polish your gun. Take care of your gun. Keep it loaded. Just don't shoot yourself in the foot. It is therefore, he writes, the inhabitants themselves who permit or rather bring about their own subjection. Since by ceasing to submit, they will put an end to their servitude. A people enslaves itself, cuts its own throat. When having a choice between being vassals and being free men, it deserts its liberties and takes on the yoke, gives consent to its own misery, or rather, apparently, welcomes it. That's harsh. It's extremely harsh and honest and true. In my experience, in my studies, this is absolutely true. Is that we can complain about the Biden administration or about the Trump administration or about the Obama administration or Bush or Clinton and so on. We can complain about the mayor and the city council or the chamber of commerce, the governor, the attorney general and so on. And yet, why do we complain when we have the numbers on our side? There is nothing stopping, for example, I live in Minnesota in the United States. There's nothing stopping the population of my state from marching on the Capitol. A majority of the state of Minnesota actually voted red in the last election and the previous election. A majority, even though Minnesota is labeled a blue state. And to not get it too deep into it, because I've talked about it before, it's all about zoning, it's all about districting. And so the big cities, the population centers, they get to decide ultimately who is elected and who isn't. And then there's jury rigging and ballot harvesting that goes on in every state and my state in particular. And yet eight out of 10 voters in Minnesota voted for Trump twice. But Biden took the state and I think Clinton took the state in 2016, yeah. So that means that eight out of 10 voters, registered voters in the state of Minnesota oppose what the governor, the attorney general, and the legislature is doing. And I know because I hear about it constantly. 
And yet when I ask, what are you going to do about it? They say, well, what can I do? And I always tell them half jokingly, well, you could get together and march on the Capitol and throw them out and take over. And they laugh and I laugh, but I just reflect on what Etienne says here in the Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. The reason you complain is because you can't be honest. You can't tell the truth, which is your slavery, your subjugation by the state is your choice because you choose to do nothing. And in doing nothing, you slit your own throat. And so this is the interesting thing then is that, as he observes, animals have a natural instinct to be free, right? Some animals, if they're caught in a trap, will even chew off their own limbs to escape from the trap. They have a natural driving urge to be free at all costs. And when you try to cage that animal, trap that animal, bring that animal to heel, it will flee and tear or it will turn on you and react with a ferocity that wasn't there a moment ago. And when you take a, a, a wild animal out of its natural habitat and you put it in a zoo, for example, or in captivity somewhere, that desire to be free is replaced with lethargy and despondency. You can actually make the animal give up and become depressed, actually, simply by taking it out of its natural habitat and seeking to domesticate it in one way or another. In many cases, by the time you or I go to a zoo to see an animal, that animal is the third or fourth generation descended, descended from the original lion, for example, or tiger that was captured and put in the zoo. And so within three to four breeding generations, those lions and tigers, even though they're still wild animals, they are broken because they are born in a cage and they are fed in that cage and everything about their life is that cage. So if you released a lion or a tiger from the zoo and it's the third or fourth generation born in captivity, it would die if you released it back into the wild because it's, for all intents and purposes, been domesticated. Even though it might attack you when you come in the cage, all it knows is the cage. This is the famous, you know, I know why the caged bird sings short story. And so if we apply the same principle that we observe in animals to human beings, well, our instinct for freedom is even more pronounced because God actually made us free. And the whole purpose of the Christian faith is that through the forgiveness of sins, in the name of Jesus, you are set free from guilt, set free from condemnation, set free from judgment, set free from the fear of death. It's all about Christian freedom. And yet, as in my first book, um, Crucifying Religion, I wrote an entire chapter entitled The Most Vulgar Word in the Bible, and that word is freedom. I experience this all the time as a pastor when I urge that my own parishioners take serious their Christian freedom, that they lean into their Christian freedom. But they've been so conditioned for so many generations to be afraid of freedom, afraid to sin, afraid of the guilt that comes with it, afraid of being judged, afraid of making the wrong choice, afraid of not getting into heaven, that even when they hear the word freedom, they pull away from it. Because after numerous generations of selective breeding, that desire to be free has been eradicated from them. It's atrophied. And their natural instinct to be free, their spiritual instinct to be free, atrophied, withered. It's just a husk. And so the love of liberty, as Boati says, no longer seems natural. And it's the powerful influence of custom, he writes, that does this. And what he means is our, we have a tendency to become habituated to the social and political conditions that we're born into. So in the United States, for example, well, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is a democracy, even though it's actually a constitutional republic, legally speaking. We're just raised with this. It's all these bumper sticker phrases. We're neither free nor brave in this country. This has been proven since 2020 in spades. And as far as democracy goes, well, democracy is mob rule. It's 50 plus one. 51% of the population gets to decide for everyone else what's best. And now we're going back to despotism again. In fact, as I, I've said numerous times for Nietzsche, the power of the, the president, the prime minister, the king is the power of the mob. 
And so if you can convince the masses, at least 51% of the masses, that they have freedom and that they're in charge and that you as a political leader represent them and only do what they want and what's best for them, that 51% will subjugate the rest of the population for you and you won't have to do anything. This is really how the United States runs. This is why so many, like Malcolm X, have said that the most dangerous entity in the United States is the corporate media because they can turn you into a hero one day and then the next day turn you into a demon and everyone believes them. Think about how easily we simply accept the authority of the person on TV because they're in front of a camera. Think about how easily, easily we worship celebrity just because they're on a 60-foot screen. Think about how easily it is then to sway us one way or the other simply by saying, well, you've seen me on TV and in movies, and so you know you can trust me because I play a hero in a lot of my roles, and therefore I'm telling you, you need to go out and buy Lucky Strike cigarettes because they're delicious, they're long-lasting, and they really satisfy, <laughs> right? And uh, I'm thinking of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood now, Rick Dalton. But um, <laughs> it's, it's human nature to want to be free, but then also want to be enslaved at the same time. It's a very wild, remarkable study in contrast. If we can't be free, then we'd rather be slaves. And so when we get all upset about the enslavement of other people, because it makes us feel virtuous and good and righteous, it's because we're trying to avoid and ignore what's in our own hearts, which is that, as I'm arguing and many, many others have before me, the United States is the largest debt plantation on earth, that the citizens of the United States are the most subjugated people in the world because we do it willingly every day. And even though other people from other countries and other places, even though some of the citizenry sound the alarm and warn us and lecture about it and podcast about it and go on TV and talk about it, we always think of those people as the lunatic fringe because the apparatus that controls our slavery the slave masters and their, their managers want us to know, and therefore they hammer this home constantly. Those voices are the lunatic fringe. They're abnormal. You don't want to be like those people. I mean, just look at them. Just look at the way she talks. Look at what we found out about her. And so that's the influence of custom, to be habituated towards the social and political conditions that we're born into. And just like an animal that's born in captivity doesn't understand freedom and therefore doesn't resist its chains, that's the way that we are too, especially in the United States. We're born into a state of slavery in this country and we lack the knowledge of what it means to be free. But we're taught from the earliest age that this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And it's hammered into our head every single day. And we watch movies and TV shows and we celebrate the 4th of July and we're given days off by our employers. All of these things that we're told by the corporate media, we got to go over there and defend democracy and we got to make sure that we're free here. It's all propaganda and it's all a lie. We're not free. We're not born free. Again, as I've said, try to not pay taxes and see what happens. Exercise your freedom to do whatever you want on your property and see how quickly the county comes by and gives you a fine for not having the right permits. And so what happens is that during our formative years, we observe our family, our friends, teachers, experts, authority figures. They don't resist. They go along to get along. And so we are habituated towards going along to get along. We adore those people. We worship them. Like I said, we idolize those people who tell us Watch the rebel on the screen and root for them and they're your proxy. And now go home and obey. And we do. We watch movies and TV shows. We read books and articles about heroes and revolutionaries and rebels. And then we don't put those principles that we read about into practice. Why is that? Because we're habituated from birth. And a thousand TV shows and a thousand movies and a thousand books or articles and a thousand podcasts is not going to convince people otherwise. Because people have been habituated 
indoctrinated, taught to believe that the state knows what's best. And only the best and brightest are elected to public office. They represent the very best of us. Well, if that's true, then in the present tense, they are symptomatic of the moral and spiritual evil that is rampant in our culture. And yet we do nothing about it because we are slaves. And we are slaves by choice. We accept them and we adore them. And we make excuses for them. And we do this to override our natural instinct for freedom. And so freedom isn't our default setting anymore. Submission is. <clears throat> Think of King uh, Mithridates. King Mithridates habituated himself to poison by drinking small amounts of poison every day over a long period. And so uh, Laboeti says, just like King Mithridates, we learn to swallow and not to find bitter the venom of servitude. Or, as he goes on to explain, it is true that in the beginning men submit under constraint and by force. But those who come after them obey without regret and perform willingly what their predecessors had done because they had to. This is why men born under the yoke and then nourished and reared in slavery are content without further effort. And they live in their native circumstance unaware of any other state or right and considering as quite natural the condition into which they were born. Or as I hear, this is the way we've always done it. That's usually the definition of tradition. Well, this is just the way we've always done it. And yet it's not just tradition, it's not just custom that prepares us to live and to consent to our servitude, but rather plays as I just noted, in plays, farces, spectacles, gladiators, strange beasts, medals, pictures, and other opiates. These were for ancient peoples the bait towards slavery, the price of their liberty, the instrument of tyrants. We call it bread and circuses, right? And so in the modern day, bread and circuses have changed their form, but their essence is the same. An endless supply of mindless diversions provided by the mass media and the entertainment industry. And what is the effect? It numbs us like a pharmaceutical drug. It's a farce. It's a dramatic farce. And then it's played out in our political elections as a distraction. And what are they distracting us from? The reality of our enslavement. Elections in the United States are a distraction to draw our attention away from the reality of our enslavement. That's what elections are for. And then another tactic that they used to engineer our consent, which was again true of ancient tyrants as well, is the welfare state. Laboiti notes that on select days of the year, the ruling classes used to distribute bread and wine and a little bit of money to their subjects. And then soon after those who were content and satiated, there it is again, satiated and safe, what would they scream out? Long live the king. A couple coins, a little bit of bread, maybe a cup of wine. That's all it takes to make us scream, long live the king. Remember when Biden sent out relief checks and then the next year our taxes went up for the exact amount of the relief checks? Or when the king says we're going to send a couple hundred dollars to the victims of the wildfires in Lahaina while sending tens and tens of billions overseas? to protect the democracy of other people, of course. How's Flint, Michigan's water? How is East Palestine's cleanup going? Where are the children of Lahaina? Why, then, are you voting for people that have proven by their actions and their words that they do not care about you and they do not care about your children? You are nothing more than house slaves to them. And you can say, well, we vote, so I don't know who's voting for them. And the answer is, that's because it's rigged, and you allow it, you consent to it, and then they give you some crumbs from the master's table, and you cry out, long live the king. And so Laboeti writes, the fools did not realize that they were merely recovering a portion of their own property, and that their ruler could not have given them what they were receiving without having first taken it from them. Crazy. And lastly, 
And this is the kicker. It's not enough that we are born habituated towards our own servitude. It's not enough that they give us a little bit of poison every day to build up our tolerance by giving us bread and circuses. They distract us with entertainment. They distract us with elections. That's not even enough. It's not enough that it's our custom. It's not enough that we are given opportunities to exercise our quote-unquote freedom to distract us. We need one last piece. And it's really the most important piece for many people. And that's the God card. Because bread and circuses will only satisfy for so long. For the ruling class, for them to evoke consent from us, to get us to adore them and revere them, not just hate them, not just be suspicious of them, to be 100% absolutely, totally devoted to them, they're going to appeal to the techniques of religions and divine authority so that they appear sacred. This is why the media and the politicians always refer to Congress as the hallowed halls. That is the holy halls. Well, it makes Congress holy. Do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? No. Do they celebrate the Lord's Supper and do baptisms? No. Do they follow Sharia law? No. Do they follow the tenets of the Torah? No. Do they read from the Midrash? No. What makes them holy then? And why do we all refer to the halls of Congress as holy if it's not consecrated by God himself? What makes it divine? No one ever asked that question. Why is that? Hmm. And so what do they do? Well, politicians in particular, but also corporate media and the entertainment industry, Hollywood, (coughs) they capitalize on myths, on religious ritual, on the symbolism of cults and religions. And they use these things, these images, these words, these rites to construct a edifice, a building, so to speak, of power and authority that resembles a place of worship. This is why buildings, political in particular, are developed to look are developed from classical Greek and Roman architecture. They're developed to look like cathedrals. And then they use these edifices and all the symbolism and rites and language that goes with them to bolster their evil ways. And this is the beauty of this, is the separation of church and state is complete and absolute bullshit. And it always has been. It's an invention of the Enlightenment. It's an invention of humanists. But in particular, it's an invention of the ruling class, the aristocracy. Because they were tired of religion being used against their evil ways. And so they simply instructed the preachers and the priests and the ministers at the churches they attended. They, through their curriculums, in their schools and in their universities, pushed this separation of church and state. So then, when the Jeffersons and the Madisons and the Monroes and the Adamses When they drafted the Constitution, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, they made sure to make a clear and distinct separation between church and state so that the church was never allowed to call the state to repentance for its evil ways. The churches are not allowed to refer to the state as demonic or satanic or devilish because that's the spiritual side of the house. This is the earthly side of the house. And what is spiritual has nothing to do with what we're doing over here. However... That being said, we are then going to employ all of their techniques on our side of the house too, so that they can't trump us because we're going to use their own tactics against them. We're going to use divinity. We're going to use the God language, the religious language to bolster our ways while simultaneously then vilifying the Christians and the Jews and the Muslims and any other religion that dares speak against the state. Again, we saw this in 2020 and 2021 in spades. And along the way, within three or four generations, the clergy were cleaned out that stood against the state. Because in Europe in particular, every, every country, after the 40 years war, every country declared, whatever the religion of the ruler is, that's the religion of the country. 
Therefore, if you're born in Germany in 1647, you're Lutheran. If you're born in Britain in 1776, you're Anglican, Episcopalian, and so on. But not so in the United States. In this country, we have religious freedom. It's guaranteed in the Constitution. And you're allowed to exercise that religious freedom so long as you never, ever attack the state in the name of your God. And so within three or four generations in Europe in particular, they just, again, filtered out all of the clergy that spoke out against the evils of the government and replaced them with their own appointed clergy because in those countries, the state runs the universities, which runs the theological programs, and it's the state then who ordains and sends their preachers into congregations. And so in Europe, it's a state religion. In the United States, this has now happened as well, and it's been happening for generations, at least and since the 1940s and 50s, so that most clergy would not even think to say that culture is demonic or that the state is satanic because they've been trained in Sunday school, in church, at college, at seminary. They've been trained. Pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus says so. Don't, don't exegete the text. Don't look at that text within the broader scope of Scripture. Well, Romans 13 says that God gives the state the sword and that we have to just do what they tell us to do because they're there to protect us. Again, don't think too much about it and don't read it within the broader scope of Scripture. Why? Because that's what we've been conditioned. We've been habituated through custom to believe that the state is from God and therefore it only has our best interests at heart. And the state capitalizes on this. They're the ones who perpetuate this. God and country. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. Or, alternatively, we read the Old Testament where whenever that happens and the king of the country, the king of Israel, claims that because he is the king of Israel, chosen by God, God is on their side. And because the state assigns and appoints priests and prophets, they train up priests and prophets, they appoint priests and prophets, and therefore the priests and the prophets well, they tell the king essentially whatever he wants to hear and then go and tell the people what the king wants them to hear. That's why God has to send prophets from outside because no one in Jerusalem's listening. So he sends fruit pickers and shepherds like Amos. He sends other prophets like Zephaniah to say, your priests and your prophets are liars and your king is ungodly. And you all are condemned if you don't turn back to the Lord. They don't, by the way. They never do. And even when they do, like in Nineveh's case, 250 years later, Nineveh was swallowed by an earthquake because of their wickedness. As long as the ruling party, the person on the throne, utilizes just a little bit of the language of divinity, of religion, their symbols, the language, the rituals, the myths, that's the cherry on top. That's what ultimately will get us to enslave ourselves. Because this is what happens. You can say, well, in the United States today, there's more atheists than Christians, or there's more atheists than people that believe in God in a general sense. That's not true, but let's just say it is for the sake of argument, because a lot of people want to believe that's true. They're not atheists. That is, they're not anti-God. They're not, oh, there is no God. <clears throat> they have simply failed to define what a God is and is not in such a way that they recognize that statism and nationalism are also religions and that their subjugation, their servitude to the state is their religion. The state is their God. The experts are the priests and the prophets. The sacraments are the mask, the injection, the distancing, and so on. The religious mantras it's all a part of the religion of the state. So that ultimately, it's not me who's doing these things for you. It's God Almighty. And so to resist me, your benevolent leader, is to resist divinity itself. And with that, we have custom. We have entertainment. We have habituation. And now we have God. And we just tie off those purse strings and we're good to go. Submission 101, right? And so even though this has been normal, 
throughout history, like I said in the beginning, this is normal. People want power. Those who don't have it, submit to it. It's, it's something natural to us to do this. At least for Le Boiti, he does not consider this an inevitable conclusion to the story. That is, it's just going to continue without end and there's no, there's no chance for us to change things. Because as he notes, just as there have always existed those who seek to rule and exploit others, in every generation, in every age, there are also those individuals who rebel against any form of servitude and are tortured by the chains which others appear not to notice. If you're ever frustrated, looking around at family, friends, coworkers, teammates, and think to yourself, why in the hell, why in God's name, do you not see you're being manipulated? How do you not see you're being lied to? How do you not see that you're slaves? That's what he's talking about. The torture of the chains that are on your legs and wrists are the same chains that your neighbor's wearing. It's just that you see them, and so you're tortured by them. And then you're even more tortured by the fact that they don't see the chains. And so he writes then, even if liberty had entirely perished from the earth, such men would have to invent it. For them, slavery has no satisfactions, no matter how well disguised. And maybe, at least for myself, being raised by a Vietnam vet to be anti-government, anti-authoritarian, to question everything, because as he noted, they lied us into at least two quote-unquote conflicts in the last 20 plus years. So let's be careful for the next one. But not even within that, like getting clean and sober as an addict, to be rigorously honest with myself and to do a fearless moral inventory as the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous call us to do. There is a radical freedom, a radical liberty that accompanies sobriety within that ecosystem. And once you're free from the slavery of addiction, as an example, then you come to hate. And I mean that in the most literal sense of the word, you come to hate your addiction. You hate not the person who's the addict, but the substance that enslaves them. And so I have friends, teammates that still struggle with addiction all the time. And I sympathize with them because I've been there. And one of the things that I, I talk to them about, I lecture them about, I urge them to take seriously is you have to grow to hate your addiction and the demonic presence that hides behind that addiction. Because until you come to hate your addiction, it's always going to want to tempt you back into its house. It's going to seduce you. And you're going to listen because you don't want to be honest and say, I was in your house and you are a cruel and vicious mistress and I don't want to live there anymore because I don't like the way that things turned out for me when I lived under your rule. You have to hate slavery a slavery to a substance in this case. But then out of that, you start to recognize other forms of slavery because it's not enough to just say, well, I'm free of alcohol and drugs. Great. Wait a minute. <laughs> this thing over here is getting in the way of my sobriety too. This tax debt slavery. Oh, and this over here where these people are telling me I have to do this or else. Why are they telling me to do this again? Why are they telling me to accept unquestioningly what they're ordering me to do? Because I used to accept unquestioningly my need to get high and it ruined my life and it ruined the lives of other people. So what happens, at least for me, is I apply the principles of sobriety to everything because I was taught that in AA, you have to make sobriety the most important part of your day. And once you recognize that that doesn't mean that all you think about all the time, 24-7 is be sober, be sober, be sober, go through the 12 steps, rinse, repeat. No. What it means is, is that you see everything then through the lens of sobriety because sobriety is what restores you to sanity. And so you want that sanity and you want that sobriety and you recognize then to be sane, to be sober, I must see the enemy for what it truly is. And in this case, the enemy is alcohol, the enemy is opiates, and the enemy then is anything else that wants me to be addicted unquestioningly, unconditionally to something that's going to enslave and kill me. And you know, as well as I do, we can get addicted to TV shows, we can get addicted to people, 
We can get addicted to causes. We can get addicted to charity. We can get addicted to anything given an opportunity. So long as we think that what is happening within that experience ultimately is our good. It's for our good and the good of others. Very rarely when I was with other people who were also using, was I sad and depressed. I was only upset about my addiction towards the end when I was hitting bottom, but also when I was alone because I was the party. I was the life of the party. And it didn't matter how many laws we broke. It didn't matter how many people I ran over, metaphorically, not literally. It didn't matter as long as the party kept going. Three days, four days, a month, three months in this in one instance. I took acid, LSD, every single night for a month, one summer. The entire month of July, I was on acid. I don't recommend it. It's actually really, really bad for you to do that. <laughs> but that's what I mean is it's like, okay, I like that experience and I want to keep it going. So I'll just keep dropping acid. And then when I feel like not doing it anymore, I'll stop. Well, that was a 30 day bender on LSD. <clears throat> still went to work, still drove my car and thank God I didn't hurt myself or anybody else. Still engaged in, you know, day-to-day -day activities. I was just tripping. 24-7 for 30 days. And like I said, now I can say on the one hand, the end of that trip awoken me, awakened me to a broader reality that wasn't all happiness and joy. It was actually very dark and shadowy. And it scared me so bad that that was the last time that I ever did acid or LSD or hallucinogenics because I experienced something that was unquantifiably evil and it was with me and I didn't want to experience that again. And so on the one hand, it was extremely beneficial because it pushed me further away from addiction into sobriety. It would still be another four years after that, five years after that, when I finally got sober, but I was so deep in addiction. I was a slave and I was so enslaved that that's how long it took to set me free from my addictions was five years. And then after going into an AA meeting, October 5th, 1998, it took me over a decade of going to meetings to essentially enjoy sobriety and sanity. And then every day since then, since I was 38, has been how do I reinforce my sobriety, my sanity. What do I need to do to stay sober and sane today? And it's not easy. It's not easy at all to not be a slave when everyone around you is a slave to something. And you know that you yourself are still in shackles. If you live in the United States, you are never not shackled to something that wants to control and manipulate you. A person, a cause, a political party, something. And so you're always trying to pick the next lock on the next chain that's holding you in place. And so I think if maybe we approach this topic from the perspective of addiction, it gives us a helpful set of, you know, guidelines or at least a starting line from which to start to work towards freedom and recognize that slavery has no satisfactions. Doesn't matter how well disguised our slavery is. In the end, it will not satisfy us. Temptation number one of the devil. Alcohol does not satisfy me. Ultimately, finally, no matter how I disguise it with my words, no matter how other people, you know, put it to me, one whiskey Coke is insanely delicious to me. It is the very definition of ambrosia. It is seductive. It is enchanting. It puts me under its spell. The problem I have is that that one whiskey Coke is so delicious that I want a second one. But then I'm starting to feel it and I like the feeling. So then I have a third one to carry that feeling further. And all of a sudden I've had 12. <clears throat> and when I get to 12, I am the embodiment of chaos. Happy chaos, but chaos nonetheless. And I will do things and I will say things that when I'm sober, I will regret. 
And I will have to go on an amends tour and make apologies and ask for forgiveness for the things that I've done while under the influence of alcohol. And on top of that, by the time I get to four or five whiskey cokes, that's when I'm going to want the opiates because they were handmaidens to me. They were my uh, two side pieces. And once I get on opiates, it's over. It really is. I can stop the drinking. I, I hate the way that alcohol made me feel. I hate the way that made me act. But opiates, I never hated opiates. I never hated the way they made me feel. Not one time. That's how powerful they are to me. And so I know I can't flirt with opiates. I can't say, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to hold her hand. I'm not going to make a move. We're not going to kiss or anything. Nuh-uh. You put an opiate in my hand, it's over. It just is. And I have experience to prove that to me. And so when other people come along and say, hey, I want to give you some bread. I want to give you a little bit of wine. I want to give you, put some coins in your hand. My immediate response is to close my fist. <laughs> I told my wife when we got our Biden bucks, when we got that check, I said, just send it back. Send it back because I know next year that's how much our taxes are going to go up. And sure as shit, our taxes went up that exact amount, which is why we sent back that money as soon as we got it. And because, again, I recognize if the state gives you something for free, it ain't free. They steal from Peter to give to Paul. And then they steal from Paul to give to Peter. And that's, their, that's the way it goes because they're not God. They're not gods. They can't create out of nothing. And so in order to give me something for free, someone else has got to go hungry. In order to give me safety, someone else is going to have to be exploited. In order to give me success, someone else is going to have to commit suicide tonight. That's the way the state functions. It's a death cult. And its only purpose is power and to maintain that power at all costs. And that, that's why I know, and you know this too, no matter how it presents itself, slavery is still slavery. And it always smells like the best offer that you'll ever get. We just want to help you. And in return, we would appreciate if you helped us. So I'm going to give you some bread and you're going to give me your son's life and you're going to give me your daughters and you're going to give me all your money and I'm going to give you crust. And then after you've eaten the crust, you're going to scream hail to the king. You're going to scream four more years. And that's the way that it goes. If we choose to embrace our slavery. And if again, you say, well, I choose not to embrace slavery. Well, then do something about it. Get other people to do something about it. Voluntary servitude on a mass scale can end tomorrow. If we all just said, no mas. Yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. Because why? Because there's more of us than there are of them. And there always has been. And so to conclude, the Boyatee says, from all these indignities, such as the very beasts of the field would not endure, you can deliver yourselves if you try. Not by taking action, but merely by willing to be free. Resolve to serve no more. And you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away. Fall of his own weight and break into pieces. That's beautiful. We don't have to raid City Hall. We don't have to burn down the Capitol. We don't have to stage a mass protest or a sit-in or a violent coup. We simply have to turn our backs to them and say, I don't recognize your power. I don't give you authority over me. So you go do what you do and we'll be over here doing our own thing. And so long as you don't threaten us, as long as you don't come and get in my face, you have nothing to worry about from me. But if you come and try to take from me what is mine, my God-given rights, my family and my property, my means to making a living, then we'll stop ignoring you. And then you'll find out who has the real power in this relationship. And so today, it's your choice. It's entirely your choice today whether you want to be free or be a slave.
And so I pray and I hope and I encourage you, each one of you listening, choose freedom. Go check out this essay by La Boati, The Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. I will include and link to it in the show notes. Otherwise, thank you. I will be gone, like I said, for the next two weeks. I will be speaking at a conference and then I'm going to go see family in Mexico. And so it'll probably be two more weeks before I get another podcast episode up. But in the meantime, I'm going to try and get some uh, articles up on spotterup.com. And you can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I just post up to Facebook, but I don't really go there. But you can find me on Instagram, Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley, Reverend Donovan Riley, Warrior Priest Podcast, and Jim. Go check it out. Otherwise, thanks, Space Monkeys. I really appreciate everything you do to support the show. Thank you for the follows and the downloads. Thank you for everything. I hope this helped. I hope this is encouraging, and I hope that it makes you a better person in the end. See you, Space Monkeys. Peace.